Bertrand Russell, the noted English mathematician and philosopher, once stated that the theory of relativity demanded a change in our imaginative picture of the world. Comparable changes are required in our imagination, imaginative picture of the information system world. Hello, good morning. My name is Eric Normand, and this is my podcast. Today I am uh, excerpting and commenting on the 1973 ACM Turing Award lecture by Charles William Bachman. The lecture is titled The Programmer as Navigator. Now I was not familiar with Charles Bachman um, and as I often do I read the bio uh, and you know comment on it and there's a very interesting uh, person here all right so just some s statistics or like facts basic facts uh, he's from the United States born in 1924 in Manhattan Kansas not Manhattan New York Manhattan Kansas and uh, he earned this award in 1973 when he was 49 years old. Uh, he is interesting because he was not an academician. He did have a master's degree in mechanical engineering, but he worked mainly in industry. And he, well, I'll just read it. He, he got the award for his outstanding contributions to database technology. Basically, you know, if you want to put a, a real short, short sentence, he invented the database that we know of today. Um, he created a thing called Integrated Data Store that established the concept of the database management system. All right, I'll, I'll just excerpt from this bio. During a long and varied career, he ran a chemical plant created cost capital accounting systems, headed an early data processing group, pioneered the application of computers to manufacturing control, led efforts to standardize database and computer communication concepts, won the highest honor in computer science, and founded a publicly traded company. So definitely someone out in industry, in commerce, doing very interesting stuff. All right, I'll read some more. During the 1950s, hundreds of American businesses had rushed to order computers. There was a lot of hype about potential benefits, but getting the machines to do anything useful was much harder than expected. They often ended up being used only to automate narrow clerical tasks like payroll or billing. By 1960, management experts realized that to justify the huge personnel and hardware costs of computerization, companies would need to use computers to tie together business processes such as sales, accounting, and inventory so that managers would have access to integrated, up-to-date information. Okay, so you have all these departments at your company and um, 
they so far computers have only proven useful for uh, running payroll or um, doing billing that kind of thing, like printing invoices and stuff uh, but you need information from all the departments and you need some way of gathering that all together so that you can see what's going on in the whole company all right let's continue each business process ran separately with its own data files stored on magnetic tape a small change to one program might mean rewriting related programs across the company but business needs change constantly so integration never got very far okay there they had these proprietary data formats and every time you wanted to change format you had to change the program and so then you had to go and change it all over the company and it just wasn't working the crucial invention operational by 1963 was Bachman's integrated data store or IDS IDS maintained a single set of shared files on disk together with the tools to structure and maintain them programs responsible for particular tasks such as billing or inventory updates retrieved and updated these files by sending requests to IDS IDS provided application programmers with a set of powerful commands to manipulate data an early expression of what would soon be called a data manipulation language so he basically created I mean obviously the database but he was the one who said now we're gonna access this database in this kind of standard API it's a service oriented uh, database it's not gonna live in your system it's gonna live in one place and all the other systems the billing accounting payroll um, HR any anyone who has to access the data is gonna go through this API this made programmers much more productive a crucial step towards the integration of different kinds of data which in, which in turn was vital to the integration of business processes and the establishment of the computer as a managerial tool okay, so the programmers became more productive by this decoupling like they don't have the programmers no longer have to worry so much about managing files and and doing like writing their own custom search routines and stuff through those files um, and then it gets you to it gets the data integrated uh, and um, you know you can make queries across different departments and stuff by the end of the 1960s the database management system as programs such as IDS were being called was one of the most important areas of business computing research and development Okay, so remember, this is in 1973, and he, by the end of the 60s, this DBMS, the Database Management System, was, um, was, was known to be very important. In 1973, uh, Bachman became the eighth person to win the ACM Turing Award. At that time, computer science was a young discipline, and its leaders were struggling to establish it as a respectable academic field with its own areas of theory rather than as just a technical tool needed to support the work of real scientists such as physicists all right so 
uh, I'm going to stop there. It's interesting um, that this this is stated here because I don't think I've read anything uh, in the previous uh, Turing Award bios or the lectures about really still in, in the 70s trying to establish computer science as a real science, a real field of study. Um, and that their their programmers weren't just people who like supported some other field. So Bachman was the first Turing Award winner without a PhD. The first to be trained in engineering rather than science. The first to win for the application of computers to business administration. The first to win for a specific piece of software. And the first who would spend his whole career in industry. That's, I mean, that's interesting that they would pick someone like that. But, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know if we'll see this happen again. That's that's what I'm, that's what I'm coming, um, that's, that's what I'm wondering. Will we see someone else from industry have this kind of effect Okay, he stood in opposition to the ideas of Edgar F., known as Ted Codd, a mathematically inclined IBM research scientist whose relational model for database manipulation had attracted a growing band of supporters and was beginning to legitimize database systems as a theoretically respectable research field within computer science. A debate between the two and their supporters held at an ACM workshop in 1974, is remembered among database researchers as a milestone in the development of their field. Okay, so when we think of, you know, big database systems, we often think of relational databases. And it's interesting that Bachman uh, was opposed to COD. Like there's, they seem to, be some kind of antagonism between them, although they both participated in this debate, and usually that means that the antagonism is purely, you know, intellectual. They both have similar goals. Um, so, uh, well, I mean, I think that that's really fascinating that there was this debate that, like, academics wanted to take over the database <laughs> with like more theory uh, it's pretty interesting modern relational systems continue to follow the basic template for the database management system invented by Bachman and his colleagues in Codasil a complex piece of software managing data storage, enforcing access restrictions, providing interfaces for both application programs and ad hoc queries, and providing different views on the same data to different users. Um, and yes, it's in you know the the whole idea of like a SQL database. It's a relational approach, but um, as we'll see in in the lecture, uh, it's mostly just sort of like a, a different kind of API on the same basic principles that were already in the system. And by the way, I think uh, the relational model is actually pretty cool. 
uh, and it, it wouldn't work without the work of people like Bachman who, um, who made this, made them practical and, and, you know, fast did the, the, did the hard engineering tasks. Okay. So again, the programmer as navigator. Now here's, okay. I have to say this. I always forget to preface this. Like I, here I am reading the title. I need to preface. Uh, I don't know much about databases, um, but I, I have used them and they are, you know, something I studied in school. I've also used them at, in jobs and they're just kind of like there in the background. I, I easily take them for granted. And so this lecture was actually really interesting that he kind of had to introduce the idea to the audience and, and justify it, uh, which to me was, it was, I mean, just, just be honest from, from my perspective, uh, almost 50 years later after this lecture, it's like, well, you don't need to justify having a database and having, you know, ways of standard ways of accessing the data and stuff like that. Um, so this is to me most interesting as a historical perspective, like the idea that like this introduction of the database was a turning point in, in, in the industry. And so, um, there's going to be a lot of references to that in the lecture, uh, this, this kind of perspective shift. And, um, also I'll bring up the history uh, a bit. Okay. Here we go. The programmer as navigator by Charles W. Bachman. This is, uh, published in November, 1973. This year, the whole world celebrates the 500th birthday of Nicolaus Copernicus, the famous Polish astronomer and mathematician. In 1543, Copernicus published his book concerning the revolutions of celestial spheres, which described the new theory about the relative physical movements of the earth, the planets, and the sun. It was in direct contradiction with the Earth-centered theories, which had been established by Ptolemy 1,400 years earlier. Copernicus proposed the heliocentric theory that planets revolve in a circular orbit around the sun. I raise the example of Copernicus today to illustrate a parallel that I believe exists in the computing, or more properly, the information systems world. We have spent the last 50 years with almost Ptolemaic information systems. These systems and most of the thinking about systems were based on a computer-centered concept. Okay, so he's hinting here, I mean, pretty directly uh, and a little bit, uh, perhaps a little bit uh, too arrogantly I would, you know, bringing up Copernicus in terms of, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big stretch, but he's saying that we need some similar 
shift from a computer-centered to something else. And that's what he's going to go into here. And that this would be uh, almost like a revolution, like we had the Copernican revolution, where we started seeing, we started thinking in terms of the sun being at the center of the solar system. Okay. Just as the ancients viewed the earth with the sun revolving around it, so have the ancients of our information systems viewed a tab machine or computer with a sequential file flowing through it. Each was an adequate model for its time and place, but after a while each has been found to be incorrect and inadequate and has had to be replaced by another model that more accurately portrayed the real world and its behavior. Okay, so again, he's going through this idea of this tab machine or computer with a sequential file flowing through it. It's going to go over that again. It's going to come up, but it's, it's something important that the computer was at the center and data was sequentially entering, usually through a tape or something. It's like coming in um, and you just had to read it. You had to read what the tape was telling you. And, you know, decide, okay, I don't need this, I don't need this. But you couldn't, like, you couldn't really jump around very easily on the tape. It, it was, like, linear access instead of random access. And so the computer was kind of at the center of, like, do I get more tape? Do I keep reading? Do I keep reading? Okay. A new basis for understanding is available in the area of information systems. It is achieved by a shift from a computer-centered to the database-centered point of view. This new understanding will lead to new solutions to our database problems and speed our conquest of the n-dimensional data structures which best model the complexities of the real world. Uh, so this is something that probably today is not too controversial, that we have n-dimensional data, um, meaning uh, you don't just look someone up by their primary key, like their employee ID number. You also have all these other dimensions that you might want to look them up by. Um, and that then you can sometimes have relationships between different types of data, different tables, and you can traverse those relationships. And so you're creating this space, this n-dimensional space, and he's talking about this as, you know, these model the world better than this linear sequence of data entering in through a tape. Okay, and he's going to expound on that a little bit. The earliest databases initially implemented on punched cards with sequential file technology were not significantly altered when they were moved, first from punch card to magnetic tape and then again to a magnetic disk. About the only things that changed were the size of the files and the speed of processing them. Okay, so there are, he's talking about early databases. Um, they moved from um, punch cards to magnetic tape. Okay, but both of these are linear, right? You have a stack of cards, and the, the, they're fed into the machine and read one at a time in order, uh, and magnetic tape which is a big spool of tape and it's fed through a reader and um, it's 
you just kind of feed it through and read it and you can stop when you're when you're done but then we changed the magnetic disc and because there was an existing uh, existing software it didn't change much okay in sequential file technology search techniques are well established start with the value of the primary data key of the record of interest and pass each record in the file through core memory until the desired record or one with a hierarchy is found okay so let's imagine a simple scenario you have a tape and it's just full of records and each record is you know a certain number of bytes let's say 500 bytes right so you can um, easily go through uh, and if they're in order they're sorted you can and they're sorted by let's say employee ID you can just start reading you find a record and you read its first field is the employee ID you compare it to the one you're looking for if that's the one you're looking for you're done If it's not if it's less than the one you're looking for oh you haven't reached it yet so read the next record maybe that's it oh that's not it read the next record until you either find it or you find one that's greater than it which means oh we don't have one because now we're past that ID because they're sorted so now we don't have it so that's the main way you search it's just linearly through the through the files the availability of direct access storage devices laid the foundation for the Copernican-like change in viewpoint. The directions of in and out were reversed. Okay, I'm gonna stop here. So, um, direct access storage, what he's talking about is uh, a, a, a disc, a spinning disc which if you don't know how it works I'll describe it briefly so the 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 disk is spinning and so it's the files are laid out linearly on rings on the disk right so you have this disk it's spinning really fast and if you want to read a record at a certain point in the file so let's say you know it's it's at a certain block that's where your record is you can move the read head like from the diameter I'm sorry from the circumference along the diameter or along a radius of the disk from the circumference all the way to the center so you can move your read head to the correct ring and wait for the block to come under your read head because it's spinning right so the disk is spinning you wait a small amount of time and then you can start reading the block, the exact block you want. Now, it's still linear. It's just everything happens faster. The read head only has to move a short distance from along the radius, right, of the of the disk, and uh, the disk itself is spinning really fast. And so, instead of a uh, a tape, which basically can only be spun out or spun in, right, wound up or unwound and you have to read linearly like that you can more quickly pinpoint an exact 
place on the disc that you want to start reading. And um, so that's what they're talking about with direct access. You can directly jump right to a spot. The directions of in and out were reversed. Where the input notion of the sequential file world meant into the computer from tape, the new input notion became into the database. This revolution in thinking is changing the programmer from a stationary viewer of objects passing before him in core into a mobile navigator who is able to probe and traverse a database at will. So apologies for the, the masculine uh, pronoun um, there. It really should be before them or something. Um, but you know, those were the times. Okay, so let me let me um, make sure this is clear. His, he's showing a historical change. Right now, we're on the other side of the change. Um, I've never written a program uh, that read tape, and so I can't imagine, or I can only imagine, what it must have been like to think of this computer as pulling, you know, basically unspooling tape and reading it, looking for something linearly. Uh, and so this idea was in, was now into the computer to see if that's the record you wanted. <laughs> uh, and this new concept, which I feel like is true today still, is that when you want to get data into the system, it means into the database because that's the center. There's all these other programs, these other, you know, you might think of them nowadays as like microservices or requests or what have you, are going to be reading out of the database, right? That's where the out comes from. That's where the data is. And so to get data into your system, it really means record it into the database. So there's a change from into core memory to now into the database. Okay, uh, direct, and so I, I try to, uh, when I read something like this, just to make it more interesting really, I try to put myself in the shoes of someone working on a giant machine with tape readers and think about what kind of mindset I would have to be in to have that, that, that perspective and then switch back. Oh yeah, today we're doing the database. It is true. We are thinking of, of the center of it as the database, right? So interesting. Direct access storage devices also opened up new ways of record retrieval by primary data key. The programmer who has advanced from sequential file processing to either index sequential or randomized access processing has greatly reduced his access time because he can now probe for a record without sequentially passing all the intervening records in the file. Okay, so um, you can make an index, right? Uh, and he talks a little bit about this, but the index can point to the block on the disk 
where the data is stored. So it's very fast. Once you've got the index, you can look up a particular primary key and just read the record right off. However, he is still in a one-dimensional world as he is dealing with only one primary data key, which is his sole means of controlling access. Right? So he's, he's faster. He can access any particular record in any order quickly, but he's still in this one-dimensional world. He's going to take a little, little detour for a second so that we can understand stuff a little bit better. I want to review what database management is. It involves all aspects of storing, retrieving, modifying, and deleting data in the files on personnel and production, airline reservations, or laboratory experiments, data which is used repeatedly and updated as new information becomes available. Okay, so he's talking about um, a service, right? This, this is a service for managing all of these files where we store records, okay? Storing, retrieving, modifying, deleting, the stuff we would think of today. Database management has two main functions. First is the inquiry or retrieval activity that reaccesses previously stored data in order to determine the recorded status of some real-world entity or a relationship. Okay, and we know this as the query, right? If you want to query your database, get some data out of the database, or you just want to read it. This retrieval activity is designed to produce the information necessary for decision-making. Okay, very clear. The second activity of database management is to update, which includes the original storage of data, its repeated modification as things change, and ultimately its deletion from the system when the data is no longer needed. Okay, so the updating, he's, he's putting updating all the other stuff that modifies the database. Storing a new record, um, modifying it repeatedly as things change, and then deleting it when you don't need it. The updating activity is a response to the changes in the real world which must be recorded. The hiring of a new employee would cause a new record to be stored. Reducing available stock would cause an inventory record to be modified. All of these are recorded and updated in anticipation of future inquiries. Okay, that's, I mean, it seems so obvious when he states it today, but this is a very simple statement of the, the responsibilities of the database, and it's not easy to find such a simple statement. Okay, so I think he's going back to try to talk about this n-dimensional thing now. The sorting of files has been a big user of computer time. It was used in sorting transactions prior to batch sequential update and in the preparation of reports. The change to transaction mode updating and on-demand inquiry and report preparation is diminishing the importance of sorting at the file level. Um, 
So this is this is really interesting. Um, I don't. I, this seems like a little digression, but it's still very interesting to think about where most computing time goes at any point in time as uh, an indicator of something of like what are what what are the priorities of of computing systems like what are they being applied to and it's really interesting that sorting was such a big user of time right um, we think of sorting today as I mean it's it's kind of been solved right uh, but even if it was a solved problem back then, imagine having to sort from one tape to another all of the records for the employees of a large company. And those records don't fit in memory. So you have to sort using some other mechanism and like just imagine how much time it would take not even in like the processing time like the cpu time but even in the the spooling and unspooling of that tape uh it must have taken forever to get this going um and probably was worth it because uh it let you look for employee records without like if you didn't ha like for instance if you don't have an employee with a particular id uh when you search for that id you can know when to stop you don't have to read the whole uh tape so it's probably really important to spend a lot of the time up front sorting these records so that you could uh, access them more quickly later okay think about what we spend our time on these days it's probably putting stuff on the screen um, okay in addition to a records primary key it is frequently desirable to be able to retrieve records on the basis of the value of some other fields for example it may be desirable in planning 10-year awards to select all the employee records with the year of hire field value equal to 1964 such access is retrieval by secondary data key. Okay, so you have your primary key, which is the employee ID. You want to look them up by something else. Like you want to look up all the people who were hired in 1964. With the advent of retrieval on secondary data keys, the previously one-dimensional data space received additional dimensions equal to the number of fields in the record. With small or medium-sized files, it is feasible for a database system to index each record in the file on every field in the record. In large active files, it is prudent to select the fields whose content will be frequently used as a retrieval criterion and to create secondary indices for those fields only. Okay, so Obviously, if you're going to use some, you're going to look something up by that key a lot, the secondary key, you're going to want to index it. And then you have this burden of maintaining the index as things are changing. 
and it, that can get pretty big. Okay. The distinction between a file and a database is not clearly established. However, one difference is per pertinent to our discussion at this time. In a database, it is common to have several or many different kinds of records. For an example, in a personal database, there might be employee records, department records, skill records, deduction records, work history records, and education records. Each type of record has its own primary, unique primary data key, and all of its other fields are potential secondary data keys. In such a database, the primary and secondary keys take on an interesting relationship when the primary key of one type of record is the secondary key of another type of record. This equality of primary and secondary data key fields reflects real-world relationships and provides a way to re-establish these relationships for computer processing purposes. Okay, so he's talking about foreign keys, what we call foreign keys today. Um, but it's interesting that he's talking about them as relationships. So you have relationships between these different entities in the real world and you need to model that somehow in your database and you do that by having this uh, equality of the secondary key of one entity is the primary key of another and that gives you a graph where the relationships the edges are the relationships and the nodes are the entities and uh, that's that's actually pretty cool that they had that notion um, like early on. These are smart people. Okay. There are many benefits gained in the conversion from several files, each with a single type of record, to a database with several types of records and database sets. One such benefit results from the significant improvement in performance when all redundant data can be eliminated reducing the storage space required okay I'm trying to read partial sentences here but you're able to um, to have these primary and secondary indices gain access to all the records with a particular data key value uh, you can then eliminate redundant data because all the files are stored in the same area. So you, you can, you know, put relationships between them that um, you don't have to have the record on different machines. And so it reduces the storage space required. Another significant functional and performance advantages is to be able to specify the order of retrieval of the records within a set based upon a declared sort field or the time of insertion. Um, so he's getting into kind of the nitty gritty details of like how, why, trying to justify why you would want to centralize this into one service. And you know, he's talking about performance, but it's also, I mean, performance in terms of speed, there's performance in terms of the, the amount of storage required. 
Um, and then there's also what he was talking about before uh, of, or what was talked about in the, in the biography, excuse me, of like really decoupling the, the software from the storage mechanism. Like the software that ran the report now does not have to manage the files. And, you know, you can easily change the, the record by adding a, a field to the record and you wouldn't have to change how the, how the um, file was read in and some, some other software that needed to read it, right? Okay. I think that that's, that's a more significant thing, especially as computers have gotten faster and uh, disks have gotten cheaper. In order to focus the role of programmer as navigator, let us enumerate his opportunities for record access. Oh, he goes over seven different kinds. Of, they're boring. I don't think, I mean, they're of the obvious ones. I'll read one or two. He can start at the beginning of the database and sequentially access the next record in the database until he reaches a record of interest or reaches the end. So yes, he can do sequential. He can do, um, uh, random access by primary key, random access by secondary key. So he just lists a bunch of these. It is the synergistic usage of the entire collection which gives the programmer great and expanded power powers to come and go within a large database while accessing only those records of interest in responding to inquiries and updating the database in anticipation of future inquiries. Okay, so He's basically saying you need a, uh, a bunch of these different ways of accessing. And when you can start mixing and matching and using them and composing them in the ways you need, that is when the magic happens. All right. I think I'm skipping quite a lot here in this section because these things are kind of obvious to us today. He's doing a lot of justification and you know, he has like a scenario and I think anyone who's used a database, this would just be like, yeah, I did that yesterday. <laughs> All right. There are additional risks and adventures ahead for the programmer who has mastered operation in the N dimensional data space as navigator he must brave dimly perceived shoals and reefs in his sea, which are created because he has to navigate in a shared database environment. There is no other obvious way for him to achieve the required performance. Shared access is a new and complex variation of multiprogramming or time sharing, which were invented to permit shared but independent use of the computer resources. In multiprogramming, the programmer of one job doesn't know or care that his job might be sharing the computer, as long as he is sure that his address space is independent of that of any other programs. Shared access is a specialized version of multiprogramming where the critical shared resources are the records of the database. The database records are fundamentally different than either main storage or the processor because their data fields change value through update and do not return to their original condition afterward. Therefore, a job that repeatedly uses a database record may find that records that may find that records content or set membership has changed 
since the last time it was accessed. As a result, an algorithm attempting a complex calculation may get a somewhat unstable picture. Whew, okay, that was quite a lot to read. Um, I really appreciate the poetic language, navigating, dim, braving dimly perceived shoals and reefs in his sea. All right, that's, that's cool. Um, but he's talking about when you have multiple, uh, multiple pieces of software reading and writing to the same database at the same time, you get a bunch more challenges. Uh, we, we're aware of those, these concurrency challenges, especially if like one is reading and another is writing, or you know maybe there's multiple reading and writing going on at the same time. You can get an unstable picture. He talks about something called um, set membership. So I've skipped this part, but he was talking about how when you have a secondary key, uh, it returns a set, not just the single record. With which primary key would always return a single record because there's only you know it's a it's a primary key, it's unique, uh, like employee ID. But once you start asking for employees who were hired in 1964, you're going to get a set back, and so that set could be indexed itself. Uh, and so that set membership in that set of people hired in 1964 can change. All right. So now he's, ta he's talking about shared access and the challenges of it. Which I think this section is actually really cool. It shows, uh, it shows how deeply he was thinking about this problem and um, the influence it still has today. One's first reaction is that this shared access is nonsense and should be forgotten. However, the pressures to use shared access are tremendous. The processors available today and in the foreseeable future are expected to be much faster than are the available direct access storage devices. Furthermore, even if the speed of storage devices were to catch up with that of the processors, two more problems would maintain the pressure for successful shared access. The first is the trend toward the integration of many single-purpose files into a few integrated databases. The second is the trend toward interactive processing where the processor can only advance a job as far as the manually created input messages allow. Without shared access, the entire database would be locked up until a batch programmer transaction and its human interaction had terminated. Okay, there's kind of a lot here, so let's stop there and, and, and talk about it. So he's saying the processors are today faster and will be faster than storage. That's still true today. Uh, the, that, that creates a pressure that you're going to want, you're going to have multiple programs running uh, accessing this data. Um, that's, that's, I don't know uh, why that would be, but that's what he's saying. Um, because it seems that th that you, if you had process, if the the bottleneck is the speed of your disk, uh, one way to 
to mitigate the problem of that bottleneck is to just multiply the disk, right? So you have two disks, so um, you would then kind of split up your database into two separate databases instead of having multiple access on the same one. So I'm, I'm not quite sure where he's going with that. Um, the second one is maybe more um, important. Uh, two more problems would maintain the pressure. The first is the trend toward the integration of many single-purpose files into a few integrated databases. Okay, so uh, instead of having files with single record type record types in them for a single-purpose software, we're seeing this trend. People are putting all of their records into one or a few databases. And so you, the different departments at your company are going to want to access that database uh, at the same time. The second is interactive processing. And I think that this trend maybe isn't, doesn't apply anymore, but um, basically the, you would get a screen and you would type in like, I want to look up this record and do this and, the, and then you would read it from the database and it would show you the result and then you'd say, okay, now modify the first name and the last name. And while you're doing that, some other uh, piece of software could be reading and writing to the database. And if you wanted to say, like lock the database, no, it's mine for now, you would have to go as slow as a person, as slow as a person was typing. And uh, that's unacceptable. Um, you, can't, you can't wait for people. They're too slow. Okay. When there is a queue of requests for access to the same device, the transfer of capacity of that for that device can actually be increased through seek and latency reduction techniques. This potential for enhancing throughput is the ultimate pressure for shared access. Uh, uh, so this is interesting. So he's talking about throughput, meaning bandwidth, as the the, the thing to maximize here. Um, if you have a spinning disk and you want to access a block that's somewhere else on the disk, you have to physically move the read head and then wait. And that's actually called a seek. So you're doing a, a seek on the disk to go seek out the ring where that block is written and then wait for it to come under the read head through spinning. And that seek time is uh, is is uh, is long, you know, compared to the amount of data that can flow through uh, the wires that you could read off the disk. Uh, so if you can queue up a bunch of reads, a bunch of uh, read accesses, you can actually reorder the queue so that the number of seeks, or at least the the number of seeks or the, the distance you seek is minimized, right? So that lets you get faster throughput because you have, you're reading more of the time and not seeking so much. Um, of course, nowadays, um, 
I mean, we do that. It just seems like an optimization that we've solved kind of, um, we don't think about it so much anymore. Okay. Of the two main functions of database management, inquiry and up. Oh, and but so he was saying, but well, that's actually an advantage to centralizing your database because you get to queue up more of these, these, um, file read operations. Um, it's actually something that the database, uh, the, the operating system does too. So it's, it's, it's weird. Of the two main functions of database management, inquiry and update, only update creates a potential problem in shared access. Okay, that's interesting. An unlimited number of jobs can extract data from a database without trouble. However, once a single job begins to update the database, a potential for trouble exists. The time will come when two jobs will want to process the same record simultaneously. Okay, so here's the classic problem with mutable state. Uh, if, if everybody is reading, if all the, if you only have reads, there's never a problem, right? The only problem is having to, to wait, right? Um, because you're all contending for that disk and the seeks and everything. But once you have a single process modifying the records, now you've got this big problem to manage. Okay, and he's going to break it down. This is pretty cool. The two basic causes of trouble in shared access are interference and contamination. Interference is defined as the negative effect of the updating activity of one job upon the results of another. When a job has been interfered with, it must be aborted and restarted to give it another opportunity to develop the correct output. I'm going to stop here. So we're talking about interference. So you have process A is reading from the database and process B is writing to the database. B is interfering with A because it is having a negative effect. It's updating activity is having a negative effect on A. Negative effect meaning its records are being written to as it's reading them. Something is out of sync. Right. And so what he's saying is you just restart A. You just stop A, abort it, and restart it after B is finished. That way it can get a clean look at the database without modification. Contamination is defined as the negative effect upon a job which results from a combination of two events. When another job is aborted, and when his output has already been read by the first job, the aborted job and its output will be removed from the system. Moreover, the jobs contaminated by the output of the aborted job must also be aborted and restarted. Okay, so contamination is this other way. Remember, he's talking about two basic causes of trouble. So you have job A. Um, job A was... Uh, sorry. Right. So job A is reading something, and while and meanwhile job B is writing to the database. Okay, and job A reads it, but then job B isn't done, and somehow it gets aborted. B 
because let's say it, it had it was receiving interference from C, right? So it got reboarded and aborted and restarted. But A has already read B's writing to the database, which should be rolled back and undone, right? So now A has the wrong data and it needs to be restarted. Okay, so they um, this is the two types of thing, interference and contamination. Uh, and we of course know that eventually, I don't know if they had this, but transactionality becomes a real subject of study. Like what does it mean to be transactional? And there's different kinds of transactions and stuff that give you different guarantees. Like this one, excuse me, this one will guarantee that you won't get contamination this one will guarantee you won't get interference and what and there's different strategies you could lock the table while someone is reading from it or you could do the restart etc there's all there's like a whole field of study of how to mitigate these problems but it's cool that he had the problems laid out he knew what they were and i think also it um, well, I mean, this is, this is one of the most interesting things about databases, right? It's like, you want to have this kind of shared access. The Weyerhaeuser company's shared access version of IDS was designed on the premise that the programmer should not be aware of shared access problems. Now that is cool. I think this is the the big uh, the big innovation right the big invention really is is we want to hide the this problem from the from the programmers so from all the different departments writing their own software against this database they're not going to have to know if their query got restarted or their job was contaminated and had to be aborted and restarted like they're not going to even know and so that creates a really nice level of abstraction and in fact today the database is still the kind of primary maintainer of data consistency because that illusion is maintained right that there's a real cognitive like abstraction barrier where you don't have to worry about um, how the transaction works under the hood. And that allows the database to kind of evolve, right? It allows the, uh, the database engine to use different techniques at different times. And like your, your program, like you might upgrade Postgres and it has some totally new locking table locking mechanism. You don't care. You don't care right because you have never had to deal with that as a programmer that system now okay when i say that what i, I don't mean like sometimes you have to go into optimization mode database optimization mode and you do look under the hood a little bit um, but your software doesn't have to change the way you program shouldn't have to change okay that system automatically blocks each record updated and every message sent by a job 
until that job ter terminates normally, thus eliminating the contamination problem entirely. Wow. So it blocks each record updated. Um, so nothing can read those records until the job is done. All right, so that's, I mean, that's one mechanism. Like, like I said, you could get a textbook on all the different ways of maintaining um, the consistency in a database. About 10% of all jobs started in Weyerhaeuser's transaction-oriented system had to be aborted for deadlock. Approximately 100 jobs per hour were aborted and restarted. Is this terrible? Is this too inefficient? These questions are hard to answer because our standards of efficiency in this area are not clearly defined. Okay, so it's cool that they know how many were aborted, but 10%, I mean, that means, I mean, it, it's interesting to think of it this way, but I mean, and maybe there have been studies. I'm not aware of them. I don't know. I don't know if the thing about databases, but to compare the actual throughput when you take out that 10%, right? So the 10% that were aborted and restarted, that means that potentially you had to read twice that from the database, from the disk. And so you're actually looking at um, you know, if you could read, oh man, so you're actually losing some, some read throughput on your, on your disc. Uh, and I wonder if that overwhelms the, um, the throughput you gain by doing that batching of seeks, like we talked about, like you order your seeks so that they minimize travel of the read head. Um, probably not, because he wouldn't be talking about it, but just that's the kind of things I think about when when we're talking about like different at different levels of of the of the generality of the abstraction there. Uh, like an optimization at one level, what it does to the optimization at another level. It's interesting. Okay. Would the avoidance of shared access have permitted more or fewer jobs to be completed each hour? Would some other strategy based upon the detecting rather than avoiding contamination have been more efficient? Would making the programmer aware of shared access permit him to program around the problem and thus raise the efficiency? All these questions are beginning to impinge on the programmer as navigator and on the people who design and implement his navigational aids. And in fact, I believe that as technology has changed and evolved over the years, um, these questions have had to be re-examined continuously. So going from a spinning disk to a solid state disk where you have um, you know, you don't have a seek time anymore. Uh, that changes things. Um, being able to uh, have a like m the whole index in memory potentially because you have a lot more RAM. Like that changes things. Uh, the 
there's been studies that show that if you just did the transaction on the database sequentially, like you don't have to do all the locking because the locking has a lot of overhead. There's, there's all sorts of different ways of kind of moving around the problem, moving around the, the pieces and like, where do you solve this problem? How do you solve that one? And like finding a configuration that optimizes something like these questions that he's asking optimizes something for a particular, you know, database setup, right? The data you have as it is on, you know, as it is with the indexes you have and the hardware it's running on and all that stuff matters. Of course, this is, you know, an engineer. So it's, it's the kind of thing he's thinking about. My proposition today is that it is time for the application programmer to abandon the memory centered view and to accept the challenge and opportunity of navigation within an N dimensional data space. Bertrand Russell, the noted English mathematician and philosopher, once stated that the theory of relativity demanded a change in our imaginative picture of the world. Comparable changes are required in our imaginative picture of the information system world. Okay, and I think we've we've gone through these changes, and and uh, we don't we even have trouble uh, imagining what it was like before databases. A science must be developed which will yield corresponding minimum energy solutions to database access. This subject is doubly interesting because it includes the problems of traversing an existing database, the problems of how to build one in the first place, and how to restructure it later to best fit the changing access patterns. All things that database engineers deal with. It is important that these mechanics of data structures be developed as an engineering discipline based upon sound design principles. The equipment costs of the database systems to be installed in the 1980s have been estimated at $100 billion at 1970 basis of value. It has further been estimated that the absence of effective standardization could add 20% or $20 billion to the bill. The equipment costs, just the equipment costs of these systems, estimated $100 billion of 1970 dollars. That is a lot. Um, it's really, uh, wow, that's really amazing that they estimated that much. And I wonder what it is today. Like, there's a lot more databases out there today but our systems are cheaper. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. The universities have largely ignored the mechanics of data structures in favor of problems which more nearly fit a graduate student's thesis requirement. Big data systems are expensive projects which university budgets simply cannot afford. Therefore, it will require joint university industry and university government projects to provide the funding and staying power necessary to achieve progress. There is enough material for a half dozen doctoral theses buried in the Weyerhaeuser system 
waiting for someone to come and dig it out. Okay, so there's a little dig at academia that um, it's been ignored and it's mostly because the problems are too big for a graduate student uh, to work on for their thesis requirement. Uh, we're going to need this cooperation, university industry, university government. Um, it's interesting that he talks about a dozen doctoral theses. My impression, and I didn't look this up, I should have done more research, but my impression is that's kind of how Postgres advances. If someone needs to do a thesis, um, and so they come up with some new kind of index or something and add it to Postgres, that's how I, that's how I think it advances. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. Okay, now he's going to take a dig at the ACM. Um, the publication policies of the technical literature are also a problem. The refereeing rules and practices of communications of the ACM result in delays of one year to 18 months between submittal and publication. Add to that the time for the author to prepare his ideas for publication, and you have at least a two-year delay between the detection of significant results and their earliest possible publication. Okay, well, that's all I wanted to read. Um, I don't know why I chose to put that dig at the ACM. Um, but he, he's really talking about like, this thing is happening really fast and we can't, uh, we can't wait the two years for every little thing that we were doing, uh, to, to publish it and let other people know about it. There's billions, hundreds of billions of dollars at stake, probably in the trillions used today's dollars in 2021 and uh, it's it's a lot <laughs> um, I also think it's interesting how um, like I just wonder how much of those trillions of dollars could be spent to actually pay people to develop better database techniques uh, and and how much is actually being spent I don't know I don't know um, okay this one was an interesting one for me simply because it's for historical reasons. I always try to find something interesting. Otherwise, this becomes very boring to me uh, reading these old papers. Um, and sometimes I have to dig a little deeper. And in this one, I admit it, I had to dig a little deeper. I'm not that interested in databases, but I am interested in history. So that's what I... Um, that's what I clung to, like this historical change in perspective. It's kind of fascinating that uh, that he he saw this. He was there seeing people write these programs, like reading tape in. He's like, why don't we just centralize all this? And now the in, the center, it's not the computer. The center is the database. That's where all the good stuff is. And you're just going to read and write to that. Okay. Thank you so much. My name is Eric Normand. This has been a podcast episode. Uh, thank you for listening. And as always, rock on.